good morning, everybody. I'm Simon Jackman. I'm Professor of Political Science at the United States Study Center, where I'm also the Chief Executive Officer. And um, welcome to another webinar. Um, and today, um, we're going to be talking about the US election. And we're going to be doing so from the perspective of um, more taking a democratic frame today. And, and that'll become a little clearer in just a moment when I introduce our panelists. But before I do that, as, as is customary, I would like to acknowledge the fact that the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people who are part of the Eora Nation. And we pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Um, and and to uh, now to turn to welcoming our panelists this morning. This is an in-house event. I'm, I'm really thrilled that we're relying, uh, that we've been able to draw on friends in the United States for these events. But today we're, we're, we're drawing on uh, the center's um, resident fellows and academics and um, in, in alphabetical order, uh, Charlie Udell um, is a senior fellow and visiting scholar with us at the, at the center. And uh, Charlie um, has had a career in government and in academia. He um, was um, uh, helped direct strategy and policy uh, in um, in the uh, sorry, he was in the policy planning group at the State Department under Secretary Kerry from 2015 to 2017. But he had an academic appointment as well at the U.S. Naval War College up in Providence. And he's uh, both an undergraduate and, um, and, uh, and holds a PhD from Yale uh, University. And, and Charlie specializes on uh, grand strategy right through to more nitty gritty operational matters, uh, but with a particular emphasis um, on the Indo-Pacific uh, and will be well known to you um, if you've been tracking the output of the US Study Center over the last year or two. It's been great to have Charlie with us for the last uh, little while. Uh, Garana Grigic is um, uh, seconded to the United States Study Center from the University of Sydney, where she's a lecturer in the Department of Government and International Relations. Uh, Garana has had uh, spells visiting uh, Harvard uh, University, and she's had an affiliation in one sense or another with the United States Study Center. Now for nine years, Garana, I, 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 <laughs> I didn't realize and uh, it had been that long because Garana um, began her association with us while she was uh, undertaking PhD studies uh, at the United States, uh, at, at the University of Sydney. Uh, Garana teaches uh, undergraduate and postgraduate uh, units in politics, uh, US politics and foreign policy, uh, uh, both through the center, but also uh, at the University of Sydney. And um, uh, Bruce Wolpe, uh, is a non-resident senior fellow at the United States Study Center. And um, Bruce, again, will be well known uh, to you uh, if you uh, watch TV, um, because you can't, he's one of the hardest working commentators uh, on US politics. And that's why we're delighted to have him on the masthead at the US Study Center. Um, Bruce has, a, as again, like, like a lot of people affiliate with the center, um, either a, a, a foot on both sides of the Pacific. Bruce has worked in politics in both the United States and in Australia. Uh, not many people uh, can claim that and certainly fewer at the, at the level that, that Bruce has operated at. Um, big time jobs up on Capitol Hill um, uh, during the Obama first term. And he also uh, supported uh, Julia Gillard here in Australia, where he served as the former Prime Minister's Chief of Staff immediately upon um, Prime Minister Gillard leaving office. And as I said, Bruce, a prolific uh, commentator, writer um, on, on US politics. And you'll note from that lineup um, that today we are, particularly for Charlie and Bruce, their backgrounds working for democratic administrations. And so we thought that would be a very helpful lens to put on today's webinars. We talk about what's going on in um, American politics and, and in particular, and this will be more Charlie's neck of the woods, the way foreign policy and issues around uh, foreign policy are, are starting to percolate into the campaign. And of course, that's where the implications for Australia and Australia's national interests start to really bite 
Um, so we're doing that from through the through the eyes of people that um, have worked for Democrats in the past, and and that's by design, as I said. Uh, we'll we'll flip that around later in the year, um, but today uh, that's that's our take. Uh, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Yes, indeed, we're here. I'm sorry, I was waiting for the audience reaction. That's fine. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, look, um, Bruce, you're going to be first cab off the rank this morning. Some prepared opening remarks I thought we'd take from from um, the three of you. Uh, and um, and indeed, in your case, we've got a we've got a short slide deck to accompany your remarks. Yes. Uh, thank you, Simon. Uh, Charlie Garana, it's just a real privilege to be on the same platform with you. And uh, thanks so much. Um, I just I do want to go through some slides. Everyone that I everyone in the United States who is looking at this election believes that this is the most important election in their lifetimes. That goes from President Trump to Joe Biden to voters across the country, and a lot of people observing it around the world also believe, because of the United States and its role in the world, that the outcome of this election will be one of the most uh, critical and decisive uh, in probably since World War II. So I just want to show you the state of play, and, and I want to talk to the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the Electoral College. This first slide is um, the House of Representatives for the 2018 midterm election with all those districts um, showing various colors based on whether President Trump or Hillary Clinton carried them in 2016. Now, the Democrats won 40 seats in the 2018 election to retake control of the House, and they did it if you look particularly at those blue tiled uh, districts uh, in the Northeast and then swinging a little bit in the South and then a little bit to the West, those were congressional districts that Democrats won in 2018 that Trump won in 2016. And so these are the moderate Democrats that were the difference between majority and minority in the control of the House of Representatives. So the question is, will they maintain their uh, position when will they prevail? And now just, does everyone, anyone remember impeachment? That was just four months ago. <laughs> and the question for those moderates, and these are suburban districts. They're not in the major cities. Those are democratic. They're not in rural areas. Those are Republican. So the question is, did those moderate Democrats by voting for impeachment of President Trump, were they jeopardizing their chances? All that has been subsumed by the pandemic and we'll talk about that. But uh, all but one of them uh, did vote for impeachment. They felt secure enough in what they had done in 2018 to go into 2020. So those are the seats to watch. I think on both sides, even privately, the Republicans, many Republicans concede no, they probably won't be able to take back the House. And there have been over 20 Republican retirements going into the election, which is not a good sign if you expect to take power back and all the positions that go with it, including committee chairmanships. So that's the House of Representatives. Let's turn to the Senate for a moment. That's the Electoral College. Let's go to the other slide, please. We'll come back to that one. That's the Senate. Now, what's so interesting about the Senate, and again, the uh, uh, red is the, uh, are the Republican seats, blue are the Democratic seats, and then you have a whole bunch of red states in stripes. Those are the competitive Republican seats. Now, this didn't exist uh, at the beginning of the year. A lot of people thought the Republicans had a lock on the Senate. They have a majority of three. Uh, so Democrats have to win three if Biden wins the White House, or four if Trump wins the White House to take control of the Senate. And what's interesting is that these states, look at Arizona, a Republican state, um, Georgia, a Republican state, North Carolina, a Republican state. Those seats are up. And you can see that more Republican seats are in play than Democratic seats are in play. And I would say that Democrats feel hopeful about being able to take control of the Senate if it's a good Democratic year. Now you have a couple de vulnerable Democratic seats in Michigan uh, Gary Peters is going to have a tough race. And then in Alabama, this is the Doug Jones seat. Um, it's, a, it's a very strong Republican state. Uh, he won uh, sort of in a, not a fluke, but he was not a, the strongest. Anyway, Alabama is in play for the Democrats. So they may gain some seats, but they may lose some seats too. So it's going to be probably a pretty close outcome, one or two seats either way. Now let's go to the Electoral College, please. I think everyone is familiar with this map because of what happened in 2016. 
And uh, yeah, it, again, it was Trump winning Pennsylvania, that's in the Northeast there, Michigan up in the Midwest and Wisconsin, which gave Trump the uh, majority to win. He lost the popular vote by about 3 million votes. He won the Electoral College and those three states were crucial. All of those states right now, uh, Biden is leading in polls. Uh, Trump wants th to put in play other states. He thinks he can win in Minnesota and he thinks he might be able to win in New Mexico. And so he's eyeing those blue states as comeback states. Democrats believe they could win Arizona, for example. And so putting that in play. And then Florida always, because of 29 electoral votes, uh, if, 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 if everything stays the same, Florida flips to Biden and Biden picks up one other state, he can win the election. So Florida is just so important. Right now, the polls show uh, Biden with a narrow lead in Florida, but you can never count Florida as we've known from 2000 and the, the, uh, the Gore-Bush election and the hanging chads. You just never know how that's going to go until the end. So that's how close it is. But I'd say Democrats feel they have momentum, particularly in those Midwestern uh, states uh, that decided the election for Trump in 2016. So that's what's in play among the, th the three venues, House, Senate, and presidency, as we go into this year. Thanks, Bruce. That's, that's a great way to just uh, tee us up. That, that, that's as far as you wanted to go in your opening gambit, Bruce? Yeah, let's just uh, wait for the discussion. Thank you so much. Um, and then, and then um, Garana, I think we might come to you next, if we could. Thanks. So um, thank you. I've also prepared just a couple of slides. Um, my academic side uh, of the brain couldn't help it. Um, but um, I want to, I, I guess I can't match uh, the opening remarks that Ambassador Barry delivered just last Friday in terms of his um, kind of uh, evocation of the tale of uh, the two cities and um, maybe just kind of in analog, I could say that there is a kind of tale of two campaigns um, as we head into the final six months before the presidential elections. So certainly the way things were looking just at uh, the beginning of this year, we were uh, basically looking into a campaign which was uh, for Trump very much based on this uh, keep America great again, you know, tailwinds from the strong and resilient economy. Uh, for him, it was basically all about uh, keeping the electoral college map looking the same way that Bruce has just shown you. And for Biden, uh, we didn't know that it was gonna be uh, Joe Biden, obviously, in January or even like most of the February. Um, it would be uh, uh, basically a campaign that would be uh, a kind of a referendum on Donald Trump, uh, where um, it would be all about rallying the resistance and trying to emulate the strategy from 2018 midterms, things that um, Bruce has just alluded to. But now if we look at the next slide, which uh, is the uh, other uh, uh, kind of campaign story, this is one where uh, we uh, very much see a change, a drastic change in Trump's uh, re-election bid uh, now that obviously he can't uh, um, rally on um, the success of the economy. It's basically the kind of exercise in rebranding himself as a wartime leader and one that largely uh, tries to uh, make China as the, the kind of main culprit for everything that has gone wrong um, since the uh, pandemic um, erupted in the United States. And um, for Joe Biden, it's going to be largely then about Donald Trump's leadership failures. Now, I've listed um, several fa factors that we might come back to and uh, reflect on in terms of uh, who might have the upper hand now that basically we, ha we have a campaign without a trail. We don't uh, have any sort of uh, uh, option of uh, seeing retail campaigning or massive rallies happening. Uh, so who is in command of social media and non-conventional campaigning? Um, maybe just go back to the previous slide, thank you. Um, and um, some of these big 
questions around how the mechanics of voting are, are going to happen because obviously we've seen a number of primaries either, either delayed or canceled. So some of the, the questions around universal kind of no excuse mail-in ballots and, and so on. But on the, on the um, Joe Biden side of things and uh, where obviously there is a lot of empirical records to say that he does uh, um, have a, a lot of chances in fact, uh, given that we see the United States now basically facing economic depression, the likes of which we haven't seen, seen since the Great Depression. Um, so some of these uh, questions around what is going to be uh, the kind of main uh, the main sentiment that uh, both of these candidates are going to try to mobilize their um, supporters on and, um, you know, uh, questions around now that this sort of keep America great again and optimism and kind of exuberance around the state of economy, whether those will shift back to Trump's default uh, setting, which is basically campaigning on fear and anger. And how is it that Joe Biden can keep on mobilizing and rallying the anti-Trump resistance. And one final mark, and that's something that basically speaks to both US politics and foreign policy, some of these trends um, that uh, we see on, on the last slide that I have uh, prepared, that's basically this kind of story of the pandemic as the great amplifier of negative trends. So rather than changing the course of history, um, the pandemic is only accelerating and uh, exacerbating the already uh, known trends on the ground. And some of these points speak to the US domestic politics as well as foreign policy, uh, as they do actually to a number of other countries in the world. So the fact that domestic inequalities are exacerbated, so that the fact that the pandemic hasn't uh, uh, affected all of the strata of the society alike based on you know, class or race, ethnicity, uh, gender. Um, we are seeing increasingly uh, thinned uh, multilateralism and a more Hobbesian impulse for states to act according to. Um, nationalists are using this as an opportunity to close the borders, to suppress minorities, to uh, scapegoat and blame uh, the so-called other. Populists are obviously using deflection when the easy fixes don't work. And we've seen both aspiring and established authoritarians using this opportunity to both augment and consolidate their power. And as I said, this is um, hardly, you know, uh, an endemic uh, sort of phenomenon that's exclusively found in a single state or part of the world. I think we are seeing uh, some of these trends equally in the United States, just the same as across the both uh, developed and developing world. So I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Grana. <laughs> and that was a... Um... Never apologize for showing slides. That that last slide was a terrific summary of um, great, great insight as to, uh, and and perhaps a, a really great tee up for Charlie um, to weigh in on on some of the foreign policy, both the way, you know, obviously you know the way the pandemic is is sort of exacerbating, you might say, or in Garana's terms, accelerating um, U.S.-China tensions. But in particular, I'm really interested, Charlie, you know, A, your take on that, but B, starting to perhaps game out what the electoral implications might be and perhaps even what a Biden foreign policy might even look like if you want to even go there. But over to you. Uh, great. Uh, thanks. I do want to go there. Um, so I thought what I'd do is just at the opening remarks, concentrate uh, my comments around how foreign policy is factoring into this election. Um, and it strikes me that there are four things to watch here. Uh, first, China is the foreign policy issue. Uh, and that's separate and distinct from what coronavirus is doing to the US-China competition. Um, third, uh, what would a Biden foreign policy look like? I think we already know the basic contours and basic answers of that. And then a couple of just uh, final points about changing attitudes about America's role in the world during uh, this pandemic and during the election. Uh, so first, on China as far as the foreign policy issue. Look, we have to stipulate at the beginning that foreign policy seldom plays a dominant issue in American presidential elections. That's almost certainly true this time around as well, but there's a really important qualification. 
there is a palpable sense of anger in the US towards the Chinese government. This has been around for a while, but it's growing and hardening. And actually, as early as uh, two to three weeks ago, new polls came out showing that roughly two thirds of the American population now say they have an unfavorable view of China. That's up nearly 20 percentage points since the start of the Trump administration. And I note that because I think this anger has the potential to make China a bigger issue in the campaign than in any previous campaign over the past 50 years, which means that China will be the frame for any number of other issues, including the economy, trade, investment into technology, and now global health, as we're seeing. The question, though, is twofold. Will such a framing make sense to most Americans? And does it give Trump an advantage over Biden? On the latter, I think the answer is unclear. Uh, Trump can certainly lay claim to presiding over the biggest shift in US-China policy in the last 40 years. But given his repeated praise of Xi Jinping, uh, Trump's inability to build either a broad domestic or a foreign co coalition to take on China's more egregious uh, abuses, and his constant disregard for human rights, democracy, and rule of law, it's unclear if this is terrain that actually favors Trump. Uh, second point, on what coronavirus is doing to the U.S.-China relationship. Now, before the pandemic, uh, the U.S. and China were headed towards a full-spectrum competition. There was a lively debate about what this meant, what fields it would touch, what resources would be employed, and how to seek out areas of cooperation amidst increasing tensions. Enter COVID-19. If one thing is clear, it's that competition between the two powers is hardening and accelerating. And that trend of intensifying competition is unlikely to abate during or even after the pandemic ends. Now, I know we're supposed to just talk politics here, but that has enormous implications for the making of US foreign policy and will affect and touch a whole bunch of different areas, including accelerating the partial decoupling of the, uh, the, partial decoupling of the US and Chinese economies, hardening military competition, entrenching technological competition, and turbocharging the war of words that we're now seeing. So what does this mean for Biden's foreign policy? If Biden becomes president, I would say we can say you should look for two things at the outset. First, an immediate pushback against what he and Democrats see as the more harmful of Trump's policies, especially around immigration and climate. And remember, with executive orders, he can move quite quick on those. Furthermore, uh, I think it's pretty safe to accept developments in several different policy areas, including greater focus on alliances, greater emphasis on values, a shift towards a more competitive and less confrontational China policy, and much more on the environment. And this final point here, on American attitudes towards the US's global role. Now, you're probably hearing a lot of chatter out there that between coronavirus and thus far 20% unemployment, uh, that will make the U.S. much more focused on domestic issues than external and foreign ones. Uh, but I would note that in the face of constant arguments by Trump for an America first policy over the past four years, America's support for alliances, for free trade, and even for American leadership in international institutions have all been going up consistently over the past four years and in a bipartisan fashion. In fact, according to the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, not only are these attitudes going up, but they're at their highest point over the last four decades. So let's leave it there for now, and I hand it back to you. Uh, thanks, thanks for that, Charlie. Um, great set of opening observations, uh, folks. Um, look, um, we've got some great questions already coming in from participants, and indeed encourage participants um, to, to get some questions up um, and, and please make them questions. It's, it's not an opportunity to, to sound off, um, but keep, keep those uh, proposed questions nice and tight um, so we have a good chance of getting to them. Um, but one question um, that sort of I think, you know, it might well be the elephant in the room. Um, and that's just the, let's just talk about this sooner rather than later. And that is our assessment collectively, perhaps, um, uh, individually, um, um, on Tara Reid, the allegations um, made against uh, Vice President Biden, um, where is that playing at the moment? How it's, you know, your assessments of the state of play of that, and perhaps zooming out from that 
to a question that I think is a pretty foundational one, and that is just the strange way the Democratic primary unfolded this year, sort of an abrupt end of sorts and a, you know, with the pandemic. Is the, uh, is the Democratic Party unified um, around the putative uh, nominee? And, uh, and what impact might these allegations um, and Biden's response to them be having on, you know, we've talked about the Republican base, but, but let's would appreciate some observations about the state of play among the Democratic base. Bruce, perhaps you could open up on that. Sure. Uh, thank you so much. Um, anytime, Simon, there are sexual allegations against a presidential contender, it's pretty serious business. Ask Bill Clinton, ask Donald Trump, it's pretty serious business. Um, I think right now there isn't critical mass behind it, and it, it absolutely has to be taken seriously and vetted and so forth. But a few things. Um, Biden has issued categorical denials. Now, if something emerges that challenges the categorical denial, that's a problem. Second, Biden was vetted by Barack Obama in a forensic way, a dozen lawyers. They found nothing. David Axelrod is on the record saying they found nothing and see nothing. Third, uh, Dem no Democratic leaders have defected from Biden, from Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the most powerful Democrat in the country, down to Stacey Abrams, a possible vice presidential candidate in Georgia, a former state representative. Uh, they have stood by him. Fourth, um, there's, it seems out of character for Biden. However, uh, a, a, such a charge from uh, a woman of uh, deep uh, experience and so forth, and she served in the Senate, um, it just has to be taken seriously. If all things, all that being equal, there isn't critical mass behind what she said. All things being equal, Biden will uh, survive this. Uh, there's nothing that is, uh, because of the pandemic, this is not have, doesn't have a lot of traction among the public. So polls haven't altered because of it. Um, Biden will also make a selection of a woman as vice president and how she is perceived and so forth, and that she accepts a position on the ticket with these questions, therefore right. Biden becomes important. So on the whole, it is um, uh, absolutely uh, uppermost in the minds of a lot of Democrats right now, but I, I do see Biden riding it out because of his, um, exper uh, because of his experience, his record, and how he's tried to address it so far. Grana or Charlie, anything to add to any observations on this matter you want to, you might, you might want to share? No. Sure. sure. No, I'll just uh, add a question. Uh, just one point that goes a little bit beyond uh, the allegations. Okay. Just out to the question that was being debated earlier about how unified would the Democratic Party be? especially with a contentious and with a primary season that seemed to go on longer than it would have otherwise. Uh, so two points here. One is, as you alluded to, Simon, the primary season ended earlier, which gave Biden the opportunity, and it also ended more decisively than many had been predicting even a month and a half. Uh, and that gives the Biden campaign the opportunity to do even more outreach. And I would just note that if you've watched the choreography uh, between Biden and the other candidates, and most specifically between Biden and Bernie, there has been extraordinary levels of outreach to bring them on board. Right. And that strikes me as that will continue all the way through whatever the convention looks like, be it virtual, be it together or not. Because I think Biden has made the point very clear that he wants as many supporters as he can bring. He's shifted part of his platform to make it more inclusive, but he also is not going to shift who he is fundamentally. Grana, any, anything to add to this? Yeah, um, maybe just to reflect on the experience of the Me Too movement and the fact that now this is the first real test actually for the Democrats uh, going into this election to really um, you know, practice what they preach around hearing women um, and uh, certainly you know this push to actually have the, the credible investigation I think is the one that's a really important one um, and probably just reflecting again on the primaries campaign uh, it's maybe um, unfortunate that these sort of allegations didn't come out during the primaries campaign when actually they could have made a difference particularly given how competitive it was uh, some couple of months uh, ago. 
Sure. Um, one thing I, um, I, I'd like to just quickly share on screen, um, and I'll figure out how to do that. Hold on. Um, it's this op-ed that just appeared this morning, uh, our time, um, from, from David Axelrod, uh, that my, my crack research assistant, Janet Gibson, <laughs> um, brought, brought to my attention. Um, um, and there she is cheering upstairs. That's good. <laughs> um, and, and just, it's a very unusual campaign environment, um, for a challenger. Uh, how do you get out of the basement and project out into the world? Um, so putting, putting the, the allegations even to one side for a moment, um, how do you, how do you camp? campaign? How do you, particularly against a performer like Trump, who as some of our um, uh, participants are noting in their proposed questions, and, you know, it's just this amazing, say what you like about Trump, but uh, dominates media cycles. Uh, they have this amazing social media operation and war chest ready to go. Um, thinking about how you campaign from a basement in Wilmington, Delaware, what it is that, that Biden needs to, to do. He's locked up the nomination. He's dealing with this, um, this Tara Reid allegation, um, but really capitalizing um, on what is a, you know, um, it's a tragedy that's befalling the United States, but um, an amazing opening it provides politically uh, for, for a challenger um, running against an incumbent president. Um, just welcome any thoughts, Bruce, Garana, Charlie, you guys might have on the way the campaign is or ought to be thinking about doing things differently uh, in, in this environment. Um, a couple of quick thoughts. Um, there was a time a century ago when a front porch campaign was really popular and, uh, and people won the presidency because of it. And, and Jimmy Carter, when he was under a lot of pressure, had a Rose Garden strategy during the Iran hostage crisis. Right. So sometimes being uh, off the front stage um, becomes uh, really important. Um, but uh, the Axelrod piece is exactly right. Biden has got to find a way to connect with tens of millions of Americans in a compelling way in a time when you can't have mass rallies and so forth. So the creativity factor is going to be important. He's also handicapped. He will not have as much money, I don't think, as Donald Trump has. And he doesn't have as strong a social media campaign yet that Donald Trump has. And so on the other hand, because the pandemic is kind of everywhere, people are not paying attention to day-to-day -day politics. And uh, a short, sharp, focused campaign in September and October may well serve Biden's interests very well compared to an ongoing out there for months, you know, being vulnerable every day, being on the offense every day. So I'm not uh, that, um, I don't think Biden's in a, he's in, he's in a basement, but not a deep hole. And he's got to uh, he'll have to find a way, uh, ultimately, to break through and connect with his base. The, the issue of Democrats is they want to defeat Donald Trump. That's why he won the primaries. He was seen not as the most charismatic, compelling candidate, but at the end of the day, in their heads, they thought it through. Who's the strongest against Trump? It's Biden. It wasn't Bernie Sanders. It wasn't Amy Klobuchar. And so they went with him. And when you look at certain races so far, like in Wisconsin, swing state, got to win. They had their primary. The Democrats, the, the Republicans, Garana's point, they tried to suppress the vote. And there was a little state election going on for the Supreme Court. So under all those impediments, a Democrat won that seat for the Supreme Court and turnout was high. And so, and in each state, Biden has a network, Klobuchar in Minnesota, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, uh, Democrats around the country who want to deliver their states for Biden. So yes, the point is right, he's got to get out, but there is opportunity further down the road, but it is challenging. Um, if I just may, one thing around the, the kind of challenge to this whole hiding in the basement uh, theory is basically that Donald Trump, the more that he spent actually talking to the media and standing on that podium in the White House, the more 
damage that he's done to himself, right? And there's been some damage control just over the past week after the infamous, you know, injecting disinfectant um, into the lungs to help uh, uh, with fighting of the virus. So um, in that sense, maybe some of the, the advantage in terms of, you know, having, a, having that ear of the media um, has, has um, maybe not worked out the best for, for Trump. But uh, equally, uh, we are seeing maybe media starting to rethink a bit. I mean, it's a kind of ongoing process and one that we've discussed so many times. So how do you not take the bait, right? How do you actually not give president this sort of uh, uninterrupted and unedited time, uh, allowing him to grandstand for hours and basically give, give him free media coverage in, in that sense. So it's a learning process, but we've seen some pushbacks actually from some of the major both um, TV networks as well as uh, uh, print media. Charlie, you want to weigh in on this one? No. Okay. That's fine. And, and that answers, um, you know, that well done, Garana. Um, I think that that also picks up on, I mean, I've got questions here from Kim Hoggard, who, um, one of our non-resident fellows, but, but also, um, um, many others are asking, uh, Armin Hicks asked a similar question. Um, um, and, and to some extent, a question from Bruce Hawker is with us. Um, um, g'day Bruce. Uh, who asked, how does Biden avoid the problem Hillary had with Bernie Sanders supporters staying home? Um, oh, Bruce does ask an interesting question. This might be one for Charlie uh, and, the, and the rest of the panel. Um, does Bernie get a gig in a Biden administration? Um, interesting. And then uh, finally, Bruce asks, um, how does he, um, Biden, make the most of his running mate? Um, two good questions there. Uh, from Bruce Hawker, who, if you don't know, I assume it is the Bruce Hawker, who is um, a longtime uh, campaigner on the, on the Labor side of politics uh, here in Australia, um, uh, in particular worked on, on, on um, with, with Kevin Rudd uh, in the past, among, among others. Um, but to um, Charlie, you want to have a swing at any of that? Sure. Um... I think if Bernie uh, were to insist that he wanted a cabinet position, he would probably get one. I would be surprised if he would insist that. I think he has the second largest megaphone in the Democratic Party right now, and he has a terrific place to continue to blast from that megaphone in the Senate. Uh, I think there are, it's very clear that there are going to be a mixture of moderates and progressives in the cabinet uh, that Biden brings in. And one of the things that we're seeing already in news stories that are circulating is uh, to Garana's point, to Bruce's point earlier about trying to reinvent a campaign uh, when you can't go outside, when you can't hold mass rallies and making sure that there's some news attention to the things that you are doing that are noteworthy and that will be potentially mobilizing to voters. One of the things that uh, is beginning to circulate out there is that Biden would potentially name not only his vice president, which generally happens around in the run-up to the convention, but might actually go further and name key members of his cabinet beforehand. Wow. Uh, that would be very unusual, quite unprecedented, but that's where you might see, in my mind, probably not a, a Bernie Sanders cabinet position, although we couldn't rule that out, but you would see a very balanced Democratic cabinet uh, coming from both wings of the Democratic Party. I wouldn't even be surprised if they snuck in a very moderate Republican there as well. Uh, but I think that it would be quite interesting because that is something that has not happened before, right? When we go back to 2008, we saw that um, Barack Obama, when he had defeated Hillary Clinton, right, famously started carrying around Doris Kearns Goodwin's team of rivals, uh, right? Drawing on the analogy of Lincoln having united the entire Republican Party, no less parts of the opposition party, to make a point that this was a unity government. I think that this is the model that Biden is already signaling that he's moving towards. That's intriguing, Charlie. Um, I see a lot of downside risk to, um, to putting some names out there, You're just giving more people uh, to, to campaign against, uh, giving the Trump and whatnot more people to campaign against. But, but the idea of signaling that it's going to be a unity government for a time of crisis 
that ha- that's quite compelling. That's really intriguing. Uh, Bruce, did you want to get on this? Uh, yes, uh, Sanders has been a prominent but not particularly effective senator. And, uh, and the issue that's going to be dominant uh, after the, the pandemic is health care and health care coverage. And he has been most aggressive on that. So, and if the Democrats do control the Senate, then being able to work with him very closely in shaping the next iteration of healthcare in America would be rewarding for Sanders and good for the country. And, and, and Biden is a former Senator himself. I think that is a logical conclusion, uh, path for him going forward. Yeah. Um, on, on, the, on the vice presidency, I mean, the issue is first who selected then how do you use her? And is the selection gonna be based on geography? Do you pick the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, to carry, help carry that state, or you do it by constituency and a Kamala Harris, African-American. And the vice presidential selection will shape, th- that's first given age and goodness knows what happens. Well, that, that person could be president at any time. And secondly, vice presidents, pretty good strike rate in succeeding the pres- as president. So that could shape the party for the next dozen years or so. So this is very important, but it's a, cho- it's a choice between geography, constituency, and the most important thing for Democrats is defeating Trump. That means getting the vote out. Who gets the vote out? Yeah. Um, although I've often thought, Bruce, there's a counter argument to that. And that is that Trump is, uh, you know, Garana made the point earlier too, you know, Trump is doing that for you, you know, and oh. you just <laughs> double down on the, you pursue the median voter in those three upper Midwestern states. Like, the base is just so determined to get rid of Trump that, you know, is there, is there less work to do there than there might otherwise be? I, that's a question. I want to yield to Garana on this, but um, uh, with Trump, you can take nothing for granted. Do not yield. Do not give up for a moment as to what needs to be done to get the vote out. Yeah, just one, one quick comment here around the campaign strategy and, you know, what are the kind of basis of voters that you're appealing to? Because Joe Biden has this interesting kind of tightrope walk that he has to do um, to kind of get maybe some of those moderate Republicans even on his side, right? And to therefore, you know, what uh, uh, my colleagues were saying just now, uh, maybe even have picks like those team of rivals essentially. But at the same time, he needs to keep on playing this message. I'm just a vessel. I'm just here as a kind of stopgap for the next four years and you progressives are going to get someone amazing um, to, you know, win some of those voters, frankly. And um, this is where maybe the VP pick as well um, might go more towards the side of, you know, someone who is going to be able to uh, uh, get that enthusiastic support uh, rather than this kind of, well, you know, I guess we we will just do with Joe Biden, you know? Um, Yeah, so... um, it's, it's kind of interesting how uh, both kind of tracks need to be, uh, in a way, satisfied. Yeah. Hey, um, there's a question that's come up from multiple people online this morning. Mark um, Mirowitz um, from SUNY Maritime College uh, in the United States. Uh, f- fantastic. Um, and other, other people have asked this. I'm just... Uh, Oh, Fred Chilton uh, has asked this, and that's about the conduct of the election um, under this unusual sort of, you know, what could well be in the middle of a public health crisis still come come uh, November. And that is, you know, a question I get asked a lot, I'm sure you do too at the US Study Center. Um, is there any chance the election is delayed or pushed back? Um, or will there be a greater reliance on other means of voting rather than in-person voting? And does that open the door for Republican efforts to, you know, stop voter turnout? Does that give Republicans more scope? And Bruce, you already alluded to that a little bit with your reflections on Wisconsin, but just a a few related questions about the conduct of the election that I'd invite you, all three of you, to take a, a very quick swing at. Uh, Charlie actually wrote on this. Charlie, you, you had a really good paper on this a little short time ago. Uh, who's that? Uh, Charlie. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thanks. Now I'm trying to remember what the paper was. Um, <laughs> no, I think I just made the point that uh, two points to keep in mind here. One is 
it is highly unlikely that the vote will be delayed. Uh, it's set, uh, the way that votes get set in America is set at the state and local level. It's not set by the federal government. In order for the federal government to shift the date, which is written uh, in statute, in federal statute, uh, and in order to then move it back further, getting it closer to the inauguration of a new president and a new Congress or the re-inauguration of president, that is in the Constitution. So the bar is exceptionally high for what it would actually take to shift the vote. Now, because each state can set its own rules for how the vote is conducted, we're seeing a scramble on both sides of the political uh, ledger about what that actually means, right? Uh, so Democrats have, and some Republicans have said that if coronavirus is gonna be with us, if social distancing is going to be with us, through the fall, God knows we do not want a repeat of the Wisconsin primary, where voters have to make up their mind, are they willing to risk their life in order to cast a vote? So can we shift to an all-male voting or have more early voting? Uh, four states already have that. Some of them are Republican uh, controlled, by the way. And so what we're seeing is in the stimulus bills that have already been injected, there have been calls co-sponsored uh, by Amy Klobuchar um, to put in the amount of money the federal government would need to cede to the states. That's several hundred billion dollars in order to carry this out, but it's been cut back, uh, both because there are other things that you have to get money out to immediately, but also because there are concerns that an all-male vote would actually increase the number of likely Democrats and independents who would be voting on this. Granted, do you have any reflections on on this, on the conduct of the election? Well, I couldn't agree more. And I think we are just gonna uh, have the sequel of the whole electoral integrity and the kind of voter fraud, you know, allegations that uh, President Trump was engaged in uh, in 2016. If we remember, you know, there was a kind of great fear over uh, his, over the potential of him losing and then actually not conceding uh, defeat and, uh, yeah. The, the kind of similar themes are already playing out uh, in terms of the no excuse um, mail-in ballots where uh, Republicans have already gone on record to say that this is actually not a reliable way of conducting um, the, the presidential election. And we might see a real split between the red and blue states in, in this manner. Uh, just very briefly, uh, Charlie's absolutely right. It would take an act of Congress to change the date from November 3rd no, the House of Representatives is not going to pass that bill. That doesn't happen. And you have to recall that what happens is the secretaries of state in each of the states, per Charlie's point, they certify the results of the election. And that's how the electoral, the electoral college is formed, which meets in Washington in December to cast the votes. So that is the ultimate vote for the presidency. Undoubtedly, in closely contested states, the president being as litigious as he is, you can expect a lawsuit bonanza uh, on uh, what the results are, you know, particularly in, let's say, Florida again, or Michigan, or Pennsylvania. So we have to expect all that. But you do have, uh, thank goodness, you do have a lot of Republican governors also supporting, as Charlie said, um, mail votes. And uh, and uh, if the more that it, that occurs, uh, the better the result ultimately will be, because it, you just can't interfere with it in, in the same way. Um, thanks. Um, we're less than ten minutes to go, so we'll we'll try and move through the remaining questions as expeditious as expeditiously as we can. Um, Jennifer Lean um, from General Public. <laughs> oh, no, she's a member of the General Public. <laughs> Small thing, I thought that might be a consultancy called General Public. Um, <laughs> um, but no, she, uh, um, but Jennifer, pardon me, Jennifer. Jennifer asks, um, um, what is known about foreign and domestic efforts um, to mess with the election? Now, last week we did a webinar, uh, a webinar with the um, with Zach Cooper um, and and Laura Rosenberg from um, uh, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, tracking um, Chinese and Russian semi-official um, and official uh, social media interventions in the United States. Um, um, if, if um, what are the prospects for a repeat of, um, of, of 2016? 
uh, where, as we all know now, you know, the U.S. intelligence community uh, concluded that there, you know, was substantial uh, efforts by, in, in, in that instance, the one they identified were Russian-sponsored uh, efforts to interfere with American public opinion, with um, with the election. Um, in that sense, in 2016, your thought for for all three of you, um, thoughts on that at this point? Perhaps Charlie, do you want to start start us off on this one? Um, sure. Uh, a couple of different things I would note here. Uh, so first of all, there's been congressional testimony uh, over the past six months with heads of various intelligence agencies and the FBI uh, testifying to members of Congress that there are ongoing efforts at uh, not only injecting disinformation into the American body politic, but also to testing the integrity of the various electoral systems. Uh, Russia was flagged multiple times, not only for what it did in 2016, but for ongoing efforts. So that is something that is happening as we speak. Uh, the second point though is uh, because the penalties have been so low, and by so low, I simply mean non-existent as to what they did in 2016, based on the unanimous finding of all 17 intelligence agencies, right? And they reaffirmed that just last week. Uh, because the penalties to a hostile foreign actor have been non-existent, what you're now beginning to see are copycat attempts to say, if we're not going to be penalized, can we stick our fingers in here? Now, this is not what President Trump claims it to be, that the Chinese have bought an ad in an Iowa newspaper and therefore want him to lose and therefore you have to vote for him. But what we are seeing, and it's not just the Chinese, it's also the Iranians we've seen and other actors, but mostly on the disinformation. And you mentioned that you had, we had Laura Rosenberger on last week. I would commend everyone to go on Foreign Affairs. She has a new piece that just came out this week about China has been a second mover in the disinformation space, but not only are they copying the Russian techniques, but they're becoming innovative in how they practice them and getting into what it is, not only on the global disinformation campaign that uh, the outbreak of COVID was not theirs, uh, maybe it was the United States, um, but also beginning to interfere with how the discourse plays out in America, in Australia, and in other places. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, Bruce Agarana? Uh, just briefly, I also think there's a lot of pressure on the platform companies, uh, particularly Facebook and Google, to step up and enough nonsense, be vigilant, and really become allies in combating this thing. And I think that uh, that blowtorch on them will be uh, to the benefit of the functioning of democracy, but it is under threat. Garana. Yeah, just, um, I, I think it's really tragic that uh, very little has been learned in terms of, you know, the legislation that was needed in the extent that's needed um, in order to try to prevent some of these efforts. And I would absolutely agree with uh, Charlie around the point that um, while we've seen Russia being the most active now in the wake of the pandemic, the, the fact that China has been engaged in such large-scale and, and uh, a very coordinated effort in, in spreading disinformation and deflecting uh, from some of its responsibility um, has been uh, uh, quite stark. Um, so I, I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon in light of some of the themes that um, we've lagged at the beginning of this talk, which is basically increasing competition, rivalry, uh, basically uh, not a lot of platforms where uh, we could actually see some sort of international or multilateral effort to try to prevent these things from happening. So uh, the fact that this is something that, you know, at the UN level, there are, there are some, there have been some moves to try to, you know, uh, um, kind of uh, regulate, regulate the cyberspace, but we, we are nowhere near any sort of treaty that would govern that space. Yeah. Simon, I'm sorry to jump in one more time. I do want to just add one short point here that just because there have been no penalties against Russia for its interference in the U.S. election, it does not mean that the U.S. is completely unprepared as it might have been in 2016. And for anyone who's interested in this, I would commend them to Google an article, I think it was in the New York Times, right after the midterm elections. And what it came out was Cyber Command, the United States Cyber Command, 
basically took the troll farms that operate out of Russia offline for a day and a half before the midterm elections. So you can bet that even if there's no penalty that's been imposed on the governments, the United States government is aware and is working. And the term of art in cybersecurity is persistent engagement. When you see hostile actors, they're right back up there in their face. Um, it, it's a, I'm a, thanks for reminding us of that piece, Charlie. And it, it's fascinating. I remember at the time, um, fascinating that the US armed forces are being deployed to help secure electoral processes in the homeland. Um, just an amazing place where we are uh, and an amazing mission um, for um, um, militaries around the world um, to have to be taking on. Um, but welcome to the mid 21st century, I suppose. Um, look, we're very, very short on time. I'm going to try and squeeze one last question in. It's very specific and pointy. It comes from Tony Booth. Um, a loyal uh, United States Study Center um, uh, event attendee. And I've seen Tony on social media um, um, kicking this uh, along. Um, there's a t little bit of polling data coming out of Florida in particular, uh, suggesting that Trump is in trouble with seniors, um, that the, the age gradient in American politics that historically um, favors Republicans pretty strongly at, at the upper end of the age distribution uh, is, is, is softening up and perhaps even softening up big time, at least according to a little bit of polling um, that um, Rick Wilson um, was, was tweeting out over the last couple of days and Tony Booth uh, certainly picked up on. And wondering if, um, Bruce, um, you might have any observations about that. Uh, yes, it is a very interesting development. We'll see if it has legs when seniors as a class feel gravely threatened, gravely threatened by the pandemic. And so the question is, uh, they weigh what Trump says against the reality that they are living with. And, and this gets to the heart of Trump's management of the biggest issue of the year, the pandemic. So I can absolutely see a desertion of, among senior voters uh, from Trump and in Florida and other states, but particularly Florida, that raises a lot of questions as to the outcome of the election. Yeah. Um, Charlie Garana, any, any quick observations on that one? Yeah, I would just uh, say that there was, um, there was a useful article in the Washington Post uh, two days ago, just charting that the Trump campaign is unclear how it ought to proceed against Biden and which campaign line they should throw out. In fact, we've been talking about the China line, uh, but they pulled it back to a certain degree. And the most interesting parts that are germane to this question uh, was Kellyanne Conway was arguing with uh, Brad Pascal, the uh, campaign chief of the Trump campaign, to stop attacking Joe Biden for his intellect or for his pauses, because that plays particularly poorly among seniors. Uh, she, of course, waved that away later. But I think that, as Bruce says, not only do you have a very vulnerable uh, population, but one who is seeing attacks on seniors for their age might not play the politics quite as well as they had intended it to. Yeah, good, 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 good advice. Uh, don't, don't, don't attack seniors. Um, Garana, um, any very last thoughts from you? Literally, we're down to seconds. Um, no, I think uh, both Bruce and Charlie have summed it up nicely. And uh, yeah, um, I would like us to respect the uh, time that we have already taken from people's days um, and thank them for sticking with us yes well done and coming up thank you to um to the to, to bruce to garana and charlie and especially to charlie who's going to double up um and on thursday uh, at 11 o'clock he will be in conversation with non-resident fellow at the u.s study center john lee john also has an affiliation with the hudson institute in washington dc and john of course um, worked uh, very closely, senior advisor uh, to Julie Bishop. He was foreign minister. John's just produced a, a paper for us that's up on our website on economic decoupling or economic separation uh, between US and China and indeed how that's been sped up or and, and how realistic it is actually is, is perhaps the bigger take. But in any event, that'll be a conversation 
between John and Charlie uh, at 11 o'clock this coming Thursday. And you can sign up for that one at the events part of our website. And then also, also, um, we've been capturing, look, the remarkable set of conversations uh, we've been having here in this for format, in particular, the John Berry conversation that Garana alluded to, all of that uh, and more is up on our website uh, under the catch up part of the USSC website. Um, do take a look there. Um, in, in particular, the observations from um, um, Bethany Allen Ibrahimian from Axios China in the United States. Some of the conversations we've been having with US-based um, friends of the center have been really remarkable. And we've been turning adversity into opportunity here using this, this uh, technology as a way to have conversations with um, uh, a remarkable cast of characters uh, based in the US and something we'll be continuing to do. So thanks everybody for your time this morning and um, looking forward to Thursday when, um, when John and Charlie uh, will be in conversation. Um, so see you then. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye.